the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. This is episode 31. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aiden Muir. And today we are talking about hypothalamic amenorrhea or HA, which I will definitely be referring it to like as a HA because that word gets me every time. Um, but Aiden is going to get us kicked off on what it is. So amenorrhea stands for absence of the menstrual cycle. Hypothalamic is referring to the hypothalamus, so that's an area in the brain that controls hormones and stuff like that. So obviously just putting those together, it's amenorrhea, so lack of menstrual cycle due to hormones. And basically the mechanism is that in this condition, the hypothalamus is suppressing the production of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which leads to follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, and estrogen all being reduced which then results in ovulation and menstruation ceasing. So it's pretty complex, but that's the simplest way I can put it out there. And like, you don't really like, basically it's just like a lack of period or lack of menstrual cycle due to weight loss, overexercise or stress, or probably a combination of those things. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a good description for sure. Yeah. And it is a diagnosis of exclusion in terms of you obviously got to rule out other stuff, like an obvious one, but like pregnancy. Like if somebody yeah. was pregnant, they wouldn't be menstruating. So like you've got to like anybody who's diagnosing this has to rule out any other possible cause of the lack of menstruation um, as well. And another thing that I was just going to touch on very briefly, but like stating the obvious, but like oral contraception can mask this as in you could be in a situation where you have the condition and have the downsides associated with the condition but you wouldn't know if you're getting that um fake bleed so to speak due to contraception yeah and i always think about it as well like as well as like the withdrawal bleeds but when you have things like the depot shot or the marina and you don't have a period at all yeah like, this can still be present but you wouldn't know because you don't get your period anyway yeah exactly exactly um so there's a lot that goes into why this matters it's definitely a deeper rabbit hole than I first thought. Um, I always used to think that the two biggest things that can go wrong if uh, HA is present is obviously issues with fertility, so difficulty conceiving. If you don't have a regular menstrual cycle, becoming pregnant is going to be quite difficult. Um, the second thing that I've always known exists is the impact on bone health. So. When um, HA is present, there is a, an overall reduction in estrogen, um, very similar to what you would see in like postmenopausal people have that low estrogen level. Um, and what happens there is there an, with the low estrogen, there's an increase in bone resorption. But there's also so that's like the breakdown of your bones or your bone cells. Um, but there's also a decrease in calcium absorption. And there's actually something to do with vitamin D as well. Like that's not the, in terms of like the system in regards to vitamin D and bone health, something does go awry at that point as well. So it can definitely impact your bone health long-term. It is estimated the mean bone mineral density of a young woman with just six months of low estrogen that's seen in FHA has um, like an equivalent to that of a 50-year-old woman, 51-year-old woman. Um, and I thought that was just insane because in six months, yeah. you can do so much damage to your bone health. That's such a short period of time. Yeah, and like I even had a client the other day who had HA for 10 years, for example. So it's like if this happens in six months, like what happens over 10 years? And I suppose 
that amongst a few other things we're going to talk about is part of why this is so important. Like it's not just about fertility. It's not just about the menstrual cycle. It is about bone health as well. And it is about a few other things. And a lot of people, like I'm jumping the gun on this, but like a lot of people get this due to being athletes, for example, and that can contribute to it being caused. And over a long athletic career, if you are in this state for a long period of time, you lose a lot of bone mineral density and that can increase your risk of um, stress fractures and stuff like that mm-hmm. while you're an athlete. But then obviously it has implications for later in life as well. So in addition to the difficulty conceiving and the bone mineral density, there's also a higher rate of um, illness, like frequency, like getting cold and just a lower immunity level. So if you're an athlete and you're having, you're getting ill more often and it's of a longer duration, that's really going to impact you as an athlete so that's definitely something that I'm sure nobody wants so that can be a part of of HA as well Um, and then it's also going to limit your ability to recover and make training adaptations so that includes muscle growth that could include things like being injured more often so as an athlete you don't want to be sick you don't want to be injured you actually want to make training adaptations so having ha and just like brushing that off and not taking too much notice of it can really hurt you as an athlete so it can hurt you as an athlete and it can hurt your long-term health as well i think where where i struggle with ha is like a lot of people with it will kind of go, oh, I don't want kids and I'm not interested in getting pregnant, so it's fine and I actually don't like having my period anyway. But there's all these other things that can happen from a long-term perspective that you need to be worried about as well. And I think that's the piece of the puzzle that a lot of people miss. Yeah. And like, I don't know if this is because I see it from a male perspective or whatever, but like, I I think that trend is changing a little bit and that definitely exists. Like it still exists 100%, don't get me wrong. But I feel like... 20 years ago that would have been a much more popular opinion whereas like now like I see women who are like stoked to get their period back yeah the conversation is changing and it's it's really awesome because we're we're more aware of these other factors yeah that that impact your long-term health and impact your performance in regards to HA and it's not just about if you can get pregnant or not yeah so it's a lot more than that yeah and I also do think I'm in a bubble as well because I did have a conversation with another client the other day who like mentioned that they'd had HA and I was like, has anyone ever spoken to you about this? Do you know anything about it? And they're like, like, nothing. yeah, nothing. And yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I I do live in a bubble where I'm just like surrounded by people who talk about this day in, day out, day day in, day out. Yeah. Um, I suppose when we're talking about a lot of these factors, including like the muscle protein synthesis or muscle growth, injury recovery, all those kind of things, it's interesting to think about the mechanism as to how HA often occurs beyond just the hormones and stuff like that like why why does this happen so i talked about the training the stress and the nutrition side of things but like another big factor which is part of most of those things is what we call energy availability and the simplest way to think about energy availability is you burn a certain amount of calories while training how many calories do you have left over? So you eat a certain amount, you burn a certain amount through training, your body still needs to use calories for other functions. How much is left over? And like for the sake of simplifying it, like let's pretend you don't have body fat stores and stuff like that. Like I feel like that's a factor that's left a little bit out of the energy availability discussion. But it's like oversimplifying once again for the sake of keeping it simple. Say you eat 2,000 calories per day and you burn a thousand calories through training. A thousand calories through training is like a decent training load. That's quite a bit of training. Um, you would only have 
by that kind of mathematics, 1,000 calories left over for all the rest of your body's functions. And once again, I said I'm keeping it overly simple, but like most people, their basal metabolic rate is over 1,000 calories. Pretty much everybody's basal metabolic rate is over 1,000 calories. And your basal metabolic rate is the amount of calories required just for your like daily functions when you're doing nothing. So obviously like you can bring back body fat into the debate and stuff like that, but that's also another thing why HA often occurs when people get leaner as well in terms of there is less of these body's stores of calories for the body to draw on from their body fat and stuff like that. But like low energy availability is basically this concept of high exercise or high calories burned through exercise, not really a high calorie intake. There's not really this abundance of calories to go around to be used for all of these functions. The menstrual cycle is an energy intensive process. It requires calories. And if the body doesn't have a lot of calories to go around for all of the body's functions, it has to start down-regulating or shutting off certain functions. And that is one of the functions that will be shut off. But that's also why muscle growth is harder and stuff like that as well, because there's not many spare calories to be going around to be put towards muscle growth and injury recovery and all of these other things when the body doesn't really have enough calories available just for basic functions. So talking about level of leanness, you don't need to be super lean to get it. We see it more commonly with people who have low body fat, but you can have low energy availability at a higher body fat percentage as well. Like if you're training a lot and stuff like that, particularly if you've been in even a significant calorie deficit while training a lot, a lot of these things can occur. And I don't I don't know your experience, but like, do you see people get HA at significantly de- different levels of leanness? Like, do you see some people who are quite lean without it and stuff like that? Yeah, I definitely have quite a number of athletes who would, you would consider quite lean um, and don't have HA, but they are also typically the athletes that naturally sit quite lean yeah. anyway. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, I definitely have athletes who are in slightly larger bodies um, that have HA, so it yeah. can be on both spectrums. Yeah, and like putting like body fat percentages on it and stuff like that, like I, I do see people in the like kind of 10 to 13% range where a lot of people will lose their menstrual cycle around like the, by that stage who don't have it, just like you kind of said. And I, I see other people who it's like every time they dip below 20%, they, they, yeah. they lose it. So it's, it's very, very individual. I, I think part of it is what you said about how like some people who naturally are sitting at lower body fat percentages. I'd also say like how you get there is probably another factor as well in terms of like what you do with your calories, what you do with your macros, um, stress in your life, your training, all these other variables as well. So looking through the research and also just like, cause I have spent a lot of time like listening to like experts and what their thoughts are. Um, something that commonly comes up is people with HA typically have a lower proportion of their diet coming from carbs and fat. Do you have thoughts on that in terms of like, is it specifically to do with those or is it to do with other factors? I feel like that's not going like I don't think just having a high protein diet that's low in fats and carbs would necessarily lead to HA on its own, but I think it can be part of the puzzle. Yeah. That's kind of my opinion on it. I mean, fats will definitely go into it because I think you can definitely go too low in fat, like regardless of everything else and end up with HA. But I don't know. I think it's a smaller piece of the puzzle than a few other things yeah i agree what one way i'd view it is like if you were in the pursuit of like if you were doing a lot of other things that put you at risk of ha and you went on a very low fat diet i'd say you'd be increasing the risk Mm. of ha versus doing all those other things and having 
quite a higher fat diet in comparison. But like when I say that, I actually do mean quite low. Like I mean like below say 30 grams of fat or something like that, depending on the scenario. Maybe slightly higher for people who are a little bit larger as well, but like quite a low, you have to go quite far out of your way to do that. I just put that caveat out there because I don't want people listening to this and having a decent amount of fat in their diet and stressing about that. Like we only need a certain amount to cover these kind of hormonal functions. The carbs thing, people will talk about glycogen and the role that it plays having this abundance of these um, basically types of fuel available on a consistent basis. But I, I do think maybe a small factor, I think the other things factor significantly more. And when we're looking at those studies and everything talking about that, the people who are having higher protein as a percentage of their total calories and higher fiber intakes, because that's another common theme, and lower carbon, lower fat intakes are typically consuming less calories. And that could be a far more significant factor than those individual things. So they can matter. I still do encourage increasing carbs and fats. Yeah. Like that's still part of my kind of um, treatment, so to speak, or intervention or whatever you'd want to call it. But it's just one piece of the puzzle, basically. Yeah, it's hard for me to wrap my head around about like how carbs themselves would play a very specific role in that. Like you can see fats, clearly like you need fats to make hormones, therefore it's going to affect that. But Carbs for me, like, yeah, you're increasing those because you're increasing calorie intake, but the argument there, I don't know. I'm grey on it. Yeah. And speaking of grey areas, like this this next one, we're going to talk about fasting and fasted exercise and how they play roles. So something I've noticed just as a trend is, like, most people who are HA experts, so to speak, and that, that's what they do, that's their career. They're not necessarily nutritionists, dietitians or anything like that. They just, they just work in the HA space. Um will pretty much exclusively say from what I have seen, it's not everybody, this is generalization, but we'll say that with HA, you should never fast and you should never do fasted exercise. And the mechanism that's often proposed is due to the fact that cortisol, which is a stress hormone, plays a role in HA and doing fasted exercise seems to increase cortisol more significantly than if you are doing fed exercises and you've eaten even like 20 grams of carbs or something like that before that. And they might even talk about other hormones and stuff like that, like kiss peptin and stuff like that. Do you have thoughts on fasted exercise or anything like that with HA? I mean, I think generally if you're trying to increase energy availability in the system, I think it makes sense to not have a lot of fasted cardio as part of your routine. Um, Yeah, and I say, like even let's say there's a chance it plays a role in undoing HA. I think it's worth just chucking in there as part of yeah. like a, as part of your protocol, just in case. Yeah, I say the same. Like I do the exact same thing. Like I, I would, I would not be fasting. Um, the main study that is quoted or referenced when people are making this statement is a 2018 study called "Within Day Energy Deficiency and Reproductive Function in Female Endurance Athletes," and. It was a pretty whack study design. I've got to be honest. Like I, I think that one group fasted for 23 hours of the day and only had a one hour eating window and the other group like spread their food out across the day and they had similar calorie intakes, which is what people point to. But the group that fasted was in a 659 calorie deficit. The other group was in a 313 calorie deficit. They were both in deficits, but the fasting group was in double the deficit. Um, and I feel like that would compound the problem surely it would because you think almost 700 calories for, especially for a smaller female that's yeah, quite the deficit that's a big deficit yeah it's quite aggressive yeah exactly so like i take it as like useful information it's, it's a piece of the puzzle it's a factor it's something that i consider but i wouldn't say that's now on a coffin being like you cannot fast if you're if you have ha or if you're at risk like i also think the other dilemma we have is 
like you probably we're going to talk about this but we'll probably want to increase calorie intake and stuff like that to um manage or get out of ha but if you're fasting it's going to be hard to eat enough calories so it's kind of a bit of a almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that's like if you are fasting you're probably going to be eating less calories and it's harder to address the situation if you do not fast you might be able to find it easier to consume more calories and it's easier to get out of the situation yeah, and the point of fasting for most people is typically to reduce your weight and you wouldn't want to be actively trying to reduce your weight whilst addressing HA anyway. Yeah, so I suppose that is a good lead into how do you address HA? <laughs> what a good lead in. Um, okay, so there's a few things that can play into addressing HA. So the first one I'm going to talk about is reducing exercise. So I think a lot of different professionals have different stances on how much you reduce exercise by. I've seen professionals say, oh, I want you to completely stop exercising and training at all. Um, And I've seen other people say, oh, let's just reduce the volume and intensity of that exercise. Do you have a protocol that you use? I don't have a protocol. Like I do see people say what you said. Another one I see is like no high intensity interval training or just high intense exercise ever. Um, And that's where they do it and be like, you can do gentle exercise. I just think the the blanket thing is like you've got to decrease exercise probably significantly, assuming that was a factor, like assuming you were at a decently high level to start off with. Yeah, yeah. If you're someone who is just kind of exercising half an hour a day, like walking, you probably and you have and you have HA, you don't necessarily need to reduce your exercise because it probably wasn't one of the main factors. Yeah. I suppose I want to jump in on that in okay, terms yeah. of like we've other factors. Like there's there's one thing that stood out and I, I don't normally talk about like animal studies and stuff like that, but it's been like They've looked at monkeys and they've moved them into an environment that's uncomfortable for them, just a new environment, and the female monkeys will lose their menstrual cycle. Even though they've got adequate food, their exercise doesn't change, all these things, just the stress factor. And I think that's relevant in terms of when we're talking about this being like, okay, this exercise thing, relevant for most people with HA, but what if stress was such a driving force that it wasn't a factor? That's where I think it's worth like considering being like, maybe 90 plus percent of people this is relevant for but there can be like a 10 percent where it's not yeah 100 percent. i think a good preface to this part of the discussion would have been that what you do to undo ha is really going to be dependent on what's yeah. causing the ha and that's going to take a little bit of an assessment of your lifestyle and um your diet and all those kind of factors that we've we've previously talked about um so for for a lot of people reducing exercise or stopping exercise could be a piece of this puzzle and help um but for others maybe not so much um one thing that often goes into it though is increasing calorie intake yeah because it's outside of those cases where it's just stress related usually it it is because of low energy availability. Yeah. So increasing calorie intake would definitely make sense for most people who have HA, particularly in the athlete realm of things. Um, there is one study that I actually saw the sports dietitian post quite a while ago, um, and I hadn't seen it before this, but it was the, the refuel study. And they found that an increase of just 300 to 360 calories per day um, is enough for many people with HA to resume their period. So putting that into context of food, like that's just a, a decent sized snack extra a day. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you have to increase it by a ton, yeah. but just even three to 400 calories could really move the needle on it. I like that because that's also 
so much less overwhelming than certain other numbers that I see thrown out there. Because firstly, one, it's individualized and it makes sense. Like when you actually think about it, it does make sense like um, that that would probably undo it. Like a number that I see thrown out there and like people obviously caveat this being like, this is an average, this isn't like for everyone. But a number I often see is 2,500 calories. And putting myself in the shoes of most females, that sounds like a scarily high number to somebody who spent their entire life trying to diet, for example, or stay lean or whatever it is. Um, That can be overwhelming and that can scare people off. But then we also factor in that if you are doing a high amount of exercise, you do have high calorie requirements. And maybe that is only a 300 to 360 calorie increase for a lot of people. But if you think about it in terms of 300 to 360 calorie increase, that's not a large increase from where you're at. It is just an increase. There probably is a requirement to increase calories to undo HA for most people. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's, it's a hard one because I think for a, for a lot of people going up just three to 400 calories would help them resume their period, but there could definitely be a benefit to going a little bit higher than that for yeah. some people. Like for, for a lot of athletic women, 2,500 calories is a pretty standard maintenance amount, to be honest. Yeah. Like I work with a lot of female athletes and that's a pretty standard amount of calories for maintenance. Um, so I kind of see why that number is thrown out a lot because it's a good average, but yeah. I've also got a lot of athletes that that would be quite a significant surplus. Yeah. So it just, it needs to be more individual, I think, than that one number. I agree. (laughs) Another number that's thrown out there is a 45 calories per kilo of lean mass, which is another way of individualizing it. But like, I think the short answer is it just needs to be more than where you're currently at. Um, Another number that's thrown out there is getting back to a similar body weight to you were to what you were before you lost menstruation is another one that people chuck out there. But statistically speaking, that doesn't even seem to be accurate in terms of it seems like most people get one to two kilos heavier than where they lost their menstrual cycle on average before they resume it, yeah. Interesting, I didn't know that. And I don't think that's that's not a mandatory thing. Like it's just like, that's just like what seems to happen on average. I think a lot of the time when you do see um, someone to address HA, like you see a dietitian. Uh, they're like aggressive in their approach so that it it would make sense that maybe you do gain a little bit of weight in that time just to speed up the process of actually resuming your period and maybe going into a calorie surplus and and all that so it's a good thing to mention um so another way to address ha is we kind of have already addressed this but eating frequently and adequately just in general so I think it, it makes sense to definitely try to get a, to a point of maintenance whilst you could probably still be in a deficit and resume your period. I don't think it's the quickest way to fix this problem and maybe not the best way. Um, so eating adequately and eating frequently and not fasting part yeah, of this. for sure. Another one on that kind of um, stress kind of standpoint is cognitive behaviour therapy has a pretty high success rate. Yeah, that's what I find so interesting. Like going back, yeah, to that stress. And obviously for a lot of people, it's a big part of this. Yeah. There's one study, it only had 16 people. It's not crazy large or anything like that. But they got one group to just be the control group, just continue continue doing what they would have done without the study. And the other group did CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, for 20 weeks. And 87% of that group resumed a regular menstrual cycle. And in the other group, only 12.5% resumed it. So it's like, that's 
really effective. <laughs> like, yeah, really yeah. effective. So it's something to consider, particularly if you've been trying other lifestyle factors or whatever and you don't seem to be making the progress that you wanted to make or whatever. It's another option that could be considered or thrown in there or anything like that too. Definitely. And I, I think a lot of women do have that experience of losing their period just because of stress. Like I feel like we've all been in a point in our lives where there's been depression or anxiety or loss of, loss of a loved one or something like that and you lose your period. And I think something like CBT and or just generally managing mental health could be a very big part of the puzzle for those people, especially if they're not someone who's like exercising like crazy or, or trying to diet aggressively. Yeah. I'm going to skip to a little bit later in, in what we had planned just due to time. And I want to go through what happens if you're in a sport that pretty much requires this. Yeah. Because like using marathon runners, for example, I don't think many great female marathon runners at the peak of their performance have their period. We know from the bodybuilding world that very few bodybuilders on stage have a regular menstrual cycle by the time they get to the stage at the end of their comp prep. And it's hard to talk about because it's kind of like choosing to pursue some sporting pursuits is not always the same as pursuing health, obviously. Like some people are going to do this with with the knowledge, all those kind of things. And I I think that's fine. Um, It's like, but if you were going to do that, that's where I come back to the whole like long-term thing. Like there's a great example that a guy named Trent Stellingworth, so he's a a nutritionist and he's done a case study on his wife who he basically showed the leaner she got, the better her marathon performance was. Um, And they've done it over a 12-year cycle being like every time she gets leaner, her performance improves, which is hard because he knows that she loses her period in this process. And basically they do this thing called nutritional periodization where she intentionally gains body fat after competitions And based on the four-year kind of like Olympic-style cycle where she peaks for that kind of most important event, gains body fat intentionally to get back to this healthy state. So that way she's not in a state of HA for 12 years straight, which would come with all of these other kind of negatives. Um, But she's able to perform at her best when the time comes. Same thing for bodybuilding where it's like, okay, you, you get into that condition for the show, but then you undertake a recovery diet to kind of undo things and get hormones back in check and everything like that post-show whenever you can. In terms of how long that takes, for, for bodybuilders, it's at least a six-month journey. But on that topic for HA, recovery seems to be somewhere in that kind of three to six-month range for most people anyway, statistically speaking. So that's something to consider as well. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't go down that road with my athletes, to be honest. I don't if, either. If there's a chance of them losing their period, it's not something I'm comfortable with. But if you have to, I think that's a good yeah. approach. Yeah, it's something to think about because it's like if you're choosing a situation where you have to do that, it's like, well, how best can we manage this? I don't encourage it or anything like that. Um, but it is something to consider that there are people who are going to put themselves in that position. If they are, it's probably going to be better to periodize it than it is to just be in a state of HA year round, year after year after year. This has been episode 31 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.